Yeah, so again, nice to be back. And as you know, I was at Tony Robbins this last week and we did walk across fire. And I'm not really sure how it works that you can do that without burning your feet. Um, you know, you get yourself into this state and you're breathing a certain way and you're looking up and you're saying cool moss in your head. And somehow the combination of shifting your physiology a little bit through taking your mind off of it, through, I don't know, determination, it just kind of works. Uh, which is strange because I feel like I burned myself cooking when I was like really excited and dancing and stuff and it still hurts. So, um, But it was this really kind of amazing and beautiful example of the power of the mind. Right? The power of what we put our mind to, how it works and how it even shifts our body and things as elemental as you don't get burned by fire. Right? which is just crazy to think about. And that's the whole point, I guess, is just this really basic belief that fire burns. It's not even a belief, it's a fact. But somehow you can walk in the middle of it and you don't get burned. So I feel like that really set the pace for the whole kind of time that I was there. And, you know, we're with 9,000 people in a stadium and everyone's like dancing and screaming, but then going through these processes and learning all these different things. and. A lot of it I was able to apply directly to my meditation practice, some of it just to my life in general. Uh, and that's also something that I'm going to be working on, finding how to integrate more. I feel like the stuff that I learned from him, it's a really great complementary piece to the stuff that I learned in the monastery. I feel like the monastery is more just about the mind itself, working just directly with the mind. Whereas the stuff I learned from him, it was almost the mind in the world, how to kind of excel how to be outstanding in the world, how to achieve the highest potential for yourself in this life. Um, one of the things that I found was really helpful just as an understanding is he was talking about neuroassociative conditioning. All right, neuroassociative conditioning. And really simply said, that's what do we associate with pleasure and what do we associate with pain? Yeah, so what are the associations that we're making to things in our life? Whether that's to people, whether that's to activities, um, behavioral traits that we have. And the things that we associate pleasure and happiness to, those are the things that we'll do more of. And the things that we associate pain or discomfort or stress to, those are the things that we'll not want to do or dread or do less of. So with meditation specifically, I've really seen that this is actually what the Buddha talks about quite a bit. A big part of the Buddha's teaching is he kind of came out and he said, a lot of the things that you guys think are pleasure are not actually pleasure. And a lot of the things that you think are pain are not really pain. And because we have the wrong understanding of pleasure and pain, of suffering and happiness, we're constantly going in the wrong direction and getting more of the thing we don't want. And when you start looking more closely, more deeply, and even sometimes more fully at your life, you can kind of see how there's behaviors that you do that although maybe they feel good or they're comfortable, like being a neutral you're talking about, right? Um, this kind of state of just being relaxed and laissez-faire and everything's like, yeah, you know, not really here, not really there. Um, it has a sense of comfort, it's comfortable, right? It's like pleasant in some way. Um, but it's also kind of like depression a little bit, right? There's no real emotional 
kind of things going on. There's no passion, there's no excitement, there's no interest, there's no joy. There's kind of a whole palette of emotional states that are missing from that. And it's something that, you know, it's easy to get into because it seems comfortable and pleasurable. But if you actually step back, you see like a neutral, right? We're not getting anywhere. And what do I really want with my life? Do I want to get somewhere or not? Do I want to just idle until I get to the grave? Or do I want to really fully be here in this life and use my time wisely and fully? You know, and starting to shift that understanding, starting to look at things in a different way. Um, and this is also, if you take it to the next level of meditation, oftentimes when I talk about feeling the breath and I say try to feel that the breath is pleasurable, that this present moment is pleasurable, um, when, th when something is pleasurable, the mind is drawn towards it, is drawn into it, it goes deeply into it. If the mind feels something is painful or displeasurable, the mind has aversion to it. So a lot of us have aversion to the present moment. We have aversion to just being here. That's why we're always doing something. There's a lot of, we have to do something, do something. A lot of people don't meditate because there's an aversion to just being here. They'd rather be doing something. It's hard for them just to be. So for you, the present moment, doing nothing, quote unquote, nothing in the present moment is, an, is, a, is a negative experience. If it's a painful or difficult experience, you're not gonna be meditating. You're not gonna wanna sit down to meditate. It's not gonna feel good to meditate. When you're meditating, it's not gonna be working, yeah? And also, on the other side of that, for those of you that have been starting to find that your daily life starts to feel good or that you feel good in yourself or you've built up this daily practice where meditation becomes something that feels good to do, then you're going to want to do it and it's going to keep happening, right? So it's like you're not going to build a practice by willpower, by judging yourself, by saying, I should be doing it. You're going to build a practice because you want to do it. Yeah, because it feels good for you to do, because you're practicing and this feels good and it feels good to sit and it feels good after you sit. And then your mind starts associating meditation with happiness, with pleasure. And that also means it starts associating slowly the present moment, being here, right, with happiness and pleasure. And that's kind of part of that shift. So a couple of you guys are asking about what would like something along the lines of a next step be or the next level to all of this. So first of all, my question is, who meditates every day? Okay. So when you meditate every day, how long are you meditating for? 30 minutes. 15 or 20 minutes. Okay. So when we talk about taking our meditation practice to the next level, if you're asking me to take your practice to the next level, I would say first, you need to take your practice to the next level. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I would want every single person in this room to say, I sit for 30 minutes, I sit for 45 minutes, I sit for an hour every day. Then we can talk about next level. Yeah, because it's only by doing it that it's going to happen. Through repetition, through massive action, as Tony Robbins says, right? Through massive action, through doing it, that's the way that you're going to get to the next level. That you make it an immersive experience, that your mind starts focusing on it and around it and going into it and understanding it. This is what the Buddha talked about, right? Through concentration, we get wisdom. Through bringing your mind fully into a task, can you see it and understand it? If meditation is just a thing that you're doing sometimes, you're not doing sometimes. Yeah, the Buddha said it's like if you take a log out of a river and you try to set it on fire, is it gonna burn? No, right? What if you set that log down by the side of the river for a couple of days and try to light it, is it gonna burn? No, it's still kind of 
and soggy, right? But what if you take that log and you put it all the way out in the sun and you let it sit there for a while <clears throat> and it slowly starts to heat up and warm up and after days it starts to get dry and then you can light it and then it burns really well, right? So the soggy log, that's us. That's us living in the world, right? Talking to people, doing things, being busy, listening to music, watching TV, right? Having this full, busy mind of doing, 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 being immersed in the world of the senses, right? Deeply immersed in the sensory world. That when you sit down to meditate, you'll kind of start to get there, but all the other kind of thoughts and feelings and emotions, right? The things happening in our life, they're coming up in our meditation. And, you know, I didn't go to a monastery for eight years for nothing. You know, like going to a monastery, that's kind of what that's about. Is that you're taking yourself out of that world and you're letting yourself dry out. And after eight years, I could say my meditation practice was amazing. Yeah, it was not amazing after the first year. It was not amazing after the second year. Not amazing after the fifth year. Yeah, after eight years, it was amazing. Yeah, and it takes a while and it takes commitment and it takes action for yourself. So you have to do it. You have to go for it. You have to put in the time. Yeah, and from there, it starts to happen. It starts to make sense. And also in Buddhism, the Buddha talked about sila samadhi panya. So sila, it's virtue, but it's also behavior. It's like are the behavioral rules that the monks had. Like we're not killing, we're not stealing, we're not lying. We're not doing drugs, we're not drinking. Um, we're, we're living in a way that's harmonious. Yeah, when I was in Australia at this monastery with Achim Brahm, I was on a little hut in the outback. All the monks had huts kind of scattered throughout. And uh, in Australia, so there's kangaroos, right? And there's parrots, and there's all these different animals kind of around. And <clears throat> the kangaroos would often come, and they would jump right up to where I was sitting, and they would kind of like look at me and hang out. And when I was eating out of my alms bowl, sometimes like parrots would come down, and they'd kind of hop next to me and look at me, and... One of the monks, a couple huts down, the parrot would actually come and it would like, he'd feed it out of his hand, you know. So through this, you know, harmlessness, through this behavioral pattern of just being peaceful, wild animals were starting to be attracted and starting to come in and become tame because the monks were so peaceful that the animals started coming in and becoming part of the community. Yeah, it was really beautiful to see that because the sila, this practice of virtue, even nature gets it, right? Oh, these monks are, are not going to hurt us. Right? They're here for us. It's this really beautiful thing to watch. And when you're living in a way that's more harmonious with the world, when you are living your life in a way that you're not feeling shame, you're not feeling regret, you're not feeling guilt, you're not feeling angry, you're not feeling stressed. Yeah, all these normal things that we go through throughout the day in kind of huge waves. Yeah, all that stuff isn't really there when you start living in a way that's more harmonious more beautiful and then when you actually sit down to practice your mind it's like you've been doing all the pre-work I guess you could say that your mind is then already in this state that when you sit to meditate you just go right in yeah and it happens quick and it can happen really fast and you go incredibly deep and when the mind goes really deep and it makes these crazy experiences of breaking through the mind and things opening and falling apart and you know then that's when the wisdom starts to come and starts to see oh okay what I thought I was, I am not. How I thought things were, it is not. Everything starts to become more clear, more visible, and it's experiential because you're experiencing, it's happening, you're doing it. <clears throat> In the practice of meditation itself, there are levels. So the level that we are all at right now 
I would call it applied concentration, right? So that's when you're applying your concentration. You're sitting and you're breathing and your mind goes off and you come back and your mind goes off and it comes back. And that's as far as a lot of us are getting. Every now and then, some of us dip into something that we call sustained concentration. That it starts to happen all by itself. That you're in the meditation and you're feeling peaceful and you're feeling good you're feeling the breath, and then the mind just kind of sinks into it, that you're not really putting in any effort, that it just feels good, and it's taking itself under its own accord. Have any of you reached that place where you're sitting and it's just kind of happening by itself a little bit? We all st in little waves, little waves. <clears throat> so, sustained. After sustained concentration, so like I was saying, um, you'll be breathing, right? So the mind is coming and going, things are coming and going. Eventually, the body awareness drops away, right? You'll be with just the breath, maybe the thoughts, the feelings. Then slowly as you're breathing, the thoughts disappear and the breath, the presence of the moment fills the mind. The place that used to be inhabited by thoughts becomes inhabited by presence, becomes inhabited by a feeling of peace, a spaciousness fills the mind. So there's no more thoughts. There's just then the breath, this feeling of peace and spaciousness. The breath then, as the object that you're using in this meditation, starts to feel really good. It starts to feel really pleasant and pleasurable. But to the point that you don't really feel the breath anymore, it just feels like pleasure. It feels just like this relaxation, this peace flowing in and out of your face. Right? It's just this peacefulness flowing. And the mind starts to rest in that feeling of peacefulness and starts to get more and more kind of focused into that place. And then something happens which is called animitta will arise. So the word nimitta means sign, but what animitta is in this sense is that when you're getting into these deep meditations, you'll start to notice light in front of your face. And that light can kind of be a shimmery light, that light can be a solid light, it can kind of come and go, it can be different colors, it can be kind of closing in and then big and then it's closing in and then it's big. This is called animitta. When the mind starts getting relaxed, when the mind starts getting still and stable, when the mind starts absorbing into itself, this starts to arise, that animitta arises, a light arises in front of your face. As you're focusing onto this pleasure, as it's getting more intense, more focused, but also as I, I say, as you're focusing in, I could also say as you're letting go, as you're letting go into this, yeah, it starts to get clearer and it starts to get bigger and brighter and more solid and stable. And then there will come a point where that nimitta, it solidifies and that just unifies with the mind. And it's almost like there's just a giant spotlight right in front of your face. And there's just this peace and space and just this big beautiful light. And it just stays like that. And that's called the first jhana. Yeah, so this is all meditation steps from the Buddha. These are things monks are still experiencing now. Yeah, and the first jhana, this is a place to be able to reach the first jhana. It also means that all of, we say in Buddhism, your defilements are cleared up. So in that moment, there's no ignorance, there's no greed, there's no anger, destructive emotions. That means your mind has reached the first step of purification. That it's, it's only in a, in a positive, pure, pure, beautiful place, I guess you could say. And there's qualities associated. There's bliss, there's peace, there's joy. There's different qualities that are associated with this. And this continues. In the heart of that, there's something called the second jhana, which gets more refined. Then the third jhana, which gets more. And then the fourth. Right? And then there's even then further jhanas that goes in. Yeah, and this is this path. It's called um, 
there's a book called The Path of Purification. It's the Vasudhimaga. It's this kind of Buddhist text that's been passed down, and they talk really about, like, in detail, like, a lot of us how to go into it. But it's a practice of purifying the mind, but the mind is absorbing deeper and deeper and deeper into itself, and there are actual steps, there are actual stages, there are things to be experienced that are still being experienced by people, things that I myself have experienced. Yeah. And it takes, that's when the mind is on fire, right? That's when your wet, soggy log is now a log on fire. Yeah, and then once you're in the fourth jhana, they say this is actually when the mind really breaks through. A lot of people say that um, that's when this, if you get superpowers or things, like you could start, you have telepathy or you can you know, see past lives and all these kinds of crazy things that starts to happen then when you break through. And then there's also after that some more jhanas. They're called the immaterial jhanas, which is like a state of neither perception nor non-perception and things like this, right? Very like lofty sounding things. And when the Buddha died, he actually went into meditation and he went through all the jhanas and then he came back and then he died in the fourth jhana, they say. Yeah, and then these are just states of purification and also in Buddhism there's um, different realms, right? There's this realm, there's the realms of deities, there's heavenly realms, so there's different realms of rebirth that you could go to. And if you die in one of the jhanas, you go to the heavenly realms. And the realms are kind of associated with the different jhanas to go in. So that's kind of like the Buddhist context of these states as well, right? These different higher states of practice. So these are things that I don't talk about usually because I don't necessarily find them helpful in these contexts. You know, when you're sitting with a group of monks who are like on retreat and they're meditating for months or years, then you go into this because these are things that start to happen, right? We're still at mostly applied concentration, if even meditating at all. <clears throat> so there are next steps, there are levels, and amazing, amazing things happen in those levels. But also a roadblock often comes in because these are things that you then start wanting to achieve, which is good if it gets your ass down on the cushion every day. But it's not helpful if you're sitting there trying to get into the state that you're not in, right? Because as we've said, that's the basis of all of our suffering anyway, is wanting something to be here that's not here, just that wanting, um, that actually causes a lot of our difficulties and a lot of our problems. So it's good to know about these states, to know that there are things out there that if you're sitting in meditation, suddenly like this light comes in, you're going, oh my God, you know, not to be afraid of it, to really go for it, feel that pleasure, that bliss, that, that beauty in those states. You know, but I know many monks that I've talked to, or nuns as well, when they practice these, knowing that these states exist, get in the way of their practice. One more thing to judge themselves about. One more thing to say, oh, I'm not really doing that good. One more thing to be sitting there and <laughs> trying to get this thing, you know, like squeezing, uh, what is it, like squeezing blood out of a rock or something, like trying to squeeze peace out of their breath, and it doesn't work, right? Because it's about letting things go, letting things be. One of the steps into that state, into those places, the things that I've been teaching you guys, although it seems very simple, this just relaxing through the body, feeling the ground, feeling the space around you, feeling the breath, um, there's a method to my madness, I guess I could say. That although what I teach is incredibly simple, there's a very specific reason that I teach it the way that I teach it and how I teach it. And then I'm trying to build in certain emotional and mental states and factors with our practice. 
because I spent time with the Burmese monk called the Paoksaida, who many consider an enlightened master, and I would say that he probably is. Um, he has a, his monastery is in Burma, and they're in the jungles of Burma, super, super hot, you know, they go on alms rounds, um, you know, his students, to pass his training, you have to have mastered all of the jhanas. You have to be able to recall your past lives. Like, to pass his training, you are on a, the doorstep of enlightenment, to pass his training. So for him to be able to take people there, it means that he's already there. He came to our monastery in Germany for a month to do a retreat. And I was able to be his attendant sometimes and also to sit in while he did his interviews with all of the retreat attendees. So I was able to sit there and just listen to people's questions. What happens when you do this? What is this? What is this? And to have him sit there and guide people what to do, how to do it. Probably 95% of the time, the thing he told people was to go back to your breath. Feel your breath. Feel the touching point of the breath. In the Vasudhimaga, it says, imagine a guard standing at the door to a castle and there's people walking in and out of the door. And he's sitting watching the people coming in and out. He's not going in around himself, he's just standing at the door watching the streams of people coming in, the streams of people going out. In that same way, watch your breath. You, you feel the place that the breath is touching the nose, the nostrils, or the upper lip. You stand at attention at that spot and you feel the air coming in, you feel the air going out. Standing at attention at the place where the breath is touching the nose. This is the way that he would teach. And I had many people in that interview that I heard were struggling, and I also had many people in that interview that had maybe never meditated before were actually getting into the jhanas. Yeah. And I also heard people that have been meditating for like 30, 40 years. One of the guys there, he was like the head of some German meditation society thing. And I heard one day the interview, and he's like, oh, I was struggling, and this, and this. And the Sayadaw just said to him, feel the breath, go back to the breath, go back to the breath. And then the next day he comes in, and he just sits there, and he says, I just had the most profound meditation I've ever had in my life. And the Sayadaw's like, yes, good, keep going. Yeah. So the problem with the way that he was teaching was that he gave no pre-steps to that. So it was all these people coming from their daily lives, people just coming from wherever. And he's saying, follow the breath, feel the breath, feel the breath as the first step. And I tried that myself. I know many monks and nuns that went to Burma and stuff like this to try that. And they struggled immensely. Why? Because they think that the breath is this thing to get something from. They're pushing themselves, they're forcing themselves. The breath, it's like a duty, it's like, you know, it's like this should, it's with force. It's a push. And when I went to see this teacher, Achan Brahm, and that's when my meditation practice really took off in Australia, is that he said almost the exact opposite. He said, yeah, that's the way to go, but to get to the place where you're feeling the breath, that breath has to feel good. This has to feel good. The Buddha said the practice has to feel good. Yeah, it has to bring you joy. It has to feel nice, right? You're happy to be doing it. The breath feels good. He calls it the beautiful breath. Yeah, and if your breath isn't beautiful yet, he says, shine it. Shine the breath, right? Really feel how good it is. Yeah, then I went to see Thich Nhat Hanh. I saw what his community does. Thich Nhat Hanh's community, they practice sitting. Not sitting meditation, just sitting. How do I sit? How do I walk? How do I eat? 
How do I talk? Breathing in, I smile. That their community was all about bringing and building this peace, this contentment, this happiness, this joy, this beauty in their daily lives. Right? So step one, bring that joy, that beauty, the sila, the virtue into your daily lives. That's what Thich Nhat Hanh's community was doing. Then I went step two, Achim Brahm, now that you're feeling good, now that you're feeling happy, joyful, inspired, peaceful, more content, then it feels good to breathe. You're happy to breathe. It feels good to connect to the breath and to be in that place. Awesome. Yeah, now you're already getting into sustained concentration. Step three, go to Sayadaw training, where now you can go deep and explore all the different jhanas and see what's going on in there. So all these different teachers that I went to, and you know, when I was at Tony Robbins, I saw that you know, he'd go and talk to Bill Gates, and he'll go and talk to Tom Brady, and he'll go and talk to all the people who are the best in their fields doing what they're doing, and he picks their brains, and he tries to see how do they do it, and what have they learned, and what can he apply, and what can he learn from them. And as he was talking, I was like, this is actually exactly what I did over my 10 years, you know, in my spiritual journey out at this place, is that I was out meeting all these different masters, these different teachers, these different communities, and I was talking to them, and listening to them, and practicing with them, and seeing what do they offer, where are they, how are they doing it. And after all that time, I've put together a system that brings you from the beginning of that to the end of that. And I've kind of taken the best of all of them, so to say, and kind of built that thing together, that that makes sense. Now, I'm definitely not as advanced in meditation as the Sayada, or probably any of his students, or Achan Brahm, or most of his students, or Thich Nhat Hanh, or a lot of his students. Yeah, so by saying beginning to end of that, I'm not saying sitting here like I am enlightened, this is, you know. But I'm saying by putting together these different systems of practice, I found the way to get people in, right? The problem with the Sayadaw's training is that he said, go to the breath, go to the breath, go to the breath. People were forcing it, pushing it, having nervous breakdowns on the meditation cushions. It's not working. Mm -hmm. Yeah, went to Thich Nhat Hanh's community. Everyone was so happy sitting there drinking their tea and looking, but I wasn't seeing people really getting deeper and deeper and deeper. They were there, of course, but the community at large, right? It was more of like a meditation lifestyle kind of thing versus like, these retreat centers were every day for 12 hours a day, they're sitting in meditation, right? But I saw that you kind of need that. You need to feel good in your life to be able to get into the meditation, for the meditation to feel good. When the meditation feels good, when you're in there, when it's beautiful, that's what then allows you to start exploring these deeper states. And that's kind of the, the, the path, I would say, the progress of it. And that's why when I talk, first of all, I try to see where everybody's at, I try to address your questions, I try to weave everything in. This is a way of priming your minds, right? This is a way of bringing you to a place where you start to feel, I kind of try to lull you into a sense of feeling like everything's okay, because everything is okay. Yeah, try to work through the doubts, the confusion, the things in your mind to bring you to a place where you feel pretty good. Then we sit and we meditate, right? We relax the body. Oh, the body's relaxed, letting go of all the tensions, which are sending signals to the brain saying something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. How about you just relax your stomach? Tony Robbins talked a lot about this. Change your physiology. If you want to change your state, change your physiology. Jump up and down, scream, change your body. What's going on? Yeah, the mind and the body are so linked. If you want to change how you're feeling, move your body, do something different. Yeah, I look around this room and I see a lot of you are like falling asleep. Yeah, jump up and down. Get, it, get your energy back. Get in there, you know? You do that every morning, you do that every day, right? We did that for four days. I had energy I didn't even know I had. Yeah, so you start changing your physiology, changing your state. You start feeling better in what you're doing, right? So as I go through the body, relaxing the body, letting go of the tension, starting to feel in the body, everything's okay. 
then I drop us into the floor. The floor is grounding. The floor is stable. The floor is as far away from your thinking mind as I can get you. Yeah, feel the earth beneath you. Yeah, very conscious step. Get out of your body, out of your mind. Feel something outside of yourself for a little bit. Cool. Then we feel the space around us. Yeah, I take you to feel the space around us. Why do we feel the space around us? Because when you start to meditate and you're not thinking anymore, what is the experience? It's the experience of space. Your mind is filled with presence and space. So when I tell you guys to feel the space around you, that's what I'm doing is I'm already bringing you into that step where instead of having thoughts in your mind, you have space in your mind. Then I finally have you come to the breath. So I bring you to that place that you're actually already supposed to be getting to, where there's space in the mind, where you're present with the breath, where you feel happy and relaxed. Those are all the different qualities that you want. Yeah, and then I try to say breathing in, you feel maybe happy, breathing out, you feel relaxed. So even trying to bring that pleasure into the breath, try to shine the breath so the mind wants to get in there. So that's the place that I bring you guys to every single time we meditate. That's how I teach. Yeah, everything I do has a reason. And it all brings you to that place where it's as much as I can give you that you're in an ideal state to practice meditation, but then you're on your own. And a lot of you notice that as soon as I stop talking in the guided meditations, your thoughts come back in, right? As soon as I leave you in that space, it feels good and you're breathing and it's nice and then you start falling asleep, right? And then you start worrying about something, right? So I set you up and then you fall over. Yeah? And then from that point on, it's your job to say, okay, I know what it feels like to be set up. How can I set myself back up? And you'll fall over again and set yourself back up again and fall over and set yourself back up. And that's the practice. Is that again and again through repetition, through familiarization, you bring yourself to that place of balance, that place of space and breath and peace. And it feels good just to sit here and do nothing. It's okay and I can let go and just be and be present. And just by getting yourself in that zone again and again and again and again, eventually you're going to drop into a deeper state. You're going to say, holy shit, there's something beyond that. Yeah, you're going to make a new experience. There's going to be a new dimension that opens up. Wow. And now you know that's there. And now you'll be practicing. And then sometimes you'll slip into that next dimension. Sometimes not, but you know it's there. And then hopefully if you practice enough, that new dimension you found becomes the norm for you. And then you practice that for a while, and then what's going to happen? Boom, you're going to slip into a deeper spot. Whoa, keeps going. Yeah, and then that's it, and that's what your practice becomes. It's actually super freaking exciting. Yeah, when I was at the monastery in Australia, and I was on this three-month retreat, and it was just every day meditating so much, but I was getting to these amazing states where, you know, I, I could just sit and smile and just think of anything happy, and I would just, my entire mind and body would just become blissful and joyful. You know, I'd be sitting up through the night and everything would just start collapsing in on itself and it would just, there'd be no more sense of duality or my body or me and the outside. It would all just become this openness and this presence and this bliss and the, you know, these amazing, it was like a, it was this, you know, it was scary, you know, some nights I'd wake up and I'd had these crazy experiences and I, one night I actually had to go through the kind of outback to this other monk's hut, you know, midnight knocked on his door and I was just crying and I was just like, I need a hug, you know, and he's like, oh, your practice is getting good, huh? <laughs> you know, because that's what the teachers say. They're like, if you haven't cried, if you haven't been terrified, you're not doing it right. Because eventually it starts breaking down your ego, it starts breaking down your reality on such deep levels, you think you're dying. You think you're having a heart attack, you think something's going on. Yeah, you think you're dying because everything you've ever known is breaking, it's falling away. Your entire sense of reality that you've had since the day you were born starts to shift before your eyes. And it's so scary because you have no idea what's happening. 
your sense of self, your identity has no place anymore in that whole thing. Yeah, but also within that, when you keep going, it's these immense states of bliss and peace and happiness and contentment. And, you know, it was, it was hard for me to leave the monastery just for this one thing is because I really made that experience that true happiness is not to be found any place outside of your own mind. That there is not a single thing you could experience. You could have like the best meal, go see the best movie, see the most beautiful sunset, go home and have the best sex you've ever had. Have this like amazing day and night of like all the best things that you've ever had in your life. And it still does not come close to how it feels to get into those states of meditation. That to have the entire mind absorbed in bliss. It doesn't even come close. Yeah, and that's out there and that's real. And that's something that's within each of us. That's the whole namaste, right? I recognize the divine in you. I recognize the possibility in every single person. We all have the same mind. There would be no Buddha if that wasn't the case. That's the Buddha's teaching, that you all have the possibility to get there, but you have to do it. Yeah, I can show you the way, but you have to walk it. You know, and it's as simple as that, and it's just the amount of practice we do. And if you guys want, like, the next level, so to say, I personally, for the next couple classes, would be happy to say, look, let's just come in here and let's just sit for an hour. Let's sit for an hour and a half. I don't even have to talk. We'll just come ring the bell and sit, practice, see what happens. Yeah, because at the end of the day, that's all that it's going to be. You know, I like being here. I like talking to you. I feel that there's helpful information. I feel that I'm able to put your minds in a good direction. This is what my teachers before me did. Yeah, they say it's like you feel like you're like a wilted plant a little bit in your practice, and the teacher comes, and then they feel like you water the plant, and you're rejuvenated, and you're ready to go, and they fill you back up with kind of enthusiasm and inspiration and courage, and then you go back into it. You know, and then you wilt again, and then they come back, and it kind of keeps happening until you make your own experiences. And then that starts to fuel you. But until you've made your own experiences, you rely on that external support and encouragement to keep going. That's the definition of Sangha. We're also here to kind of carry this together. So I can do this. I can do, I can talk to you. I can sit with you. But also, if you're not sitting outside of this class regularly, if you're not really putting in your effort and giving it all you've got, and that's fine. You don't have to. If you don't want to, I don't care. It's up to you. but if you really want to see where this path can go, if you want the results, if you want to see how it works, that's what it's going to take. You know, to learn a new language, you have to immerse your mind in that. You have to go to that country. I had to go to Germany, and then I learned German just by being there. I didn't learn it officially. It just happened. Yeah, if you want to learn anything, you have to immerse yourself in it. That's why we actually have that meditation retreat coming up with William also, right? That people can have a more immersive experience with this. Yeah, which is going to be great, but... I'm telling you, you need to be doing it in your daily life. You need to build it into your lifestyle if you want it. Yeah, and if you want it, right? If you don't want it, that's fine. If you don't want it, that's fine. If, you don't, if those states sound amazing and that'd be cool, but you just don't feel like that's for you or whatever, I would say that's fine. You know, because also the great thing about meditation is that even if you just sat in meditation once in your entire life, I would say that is beneficial, Right? Or even if you just sit once a week, or even just sit in this room, I would still say you're doing yourself a great favor. Every time you sit down to meditate, you can give yourself a pat on the back, because there's a lot of things you could be doing in that moment that are much worse for you. Yeah, and depending on how your practice is going, it could potentially be the absolute best thing you could do for yourself. And if you believe in this whole like thing about rebirth and lifetimes and stuff, then if you imagine you know countless lifetimes before this, 
you could say that this is maybe the best thing that you've done in billions of years, is to sit and breathe and meditate. And I really love it also because it's like, you know, one of the nuns that came back from Burma, she'd be talking and she said, yeah, you know, meditation, it's brainwashing. And I was like, what, how, like, how do you mean brainwashing? And she's like, yeah, you know, it's like all the stuff that you're worrying about, all the different stuff, it comes up into your mind. All that stuff that's been in the back, it comes up and you have a chance to look at it. You have a chance to work with it and then you can release it. It's like you're clean, you're literally washing out your mind. You're washing all the garbage, the gunk. That if, if you just meditate, all the stuff comes up and it comes out and you leave feeling peaceful. It's like taking a shower. Yeah, you could take a shower. If you only took a shower once in your life, I would say, well, at least you took a shower once. You peed yourself <laughs> off that one time. Yeah, if you take a shower once a week in this room with us, I'd say, well, like, you'll be clean a little bit. Yeah, but if you showered every day, I'd be like, I'm sure like your husbands or wives or kids will thank you because you don't smell as bad. You know, and it's the same principle. It's kind of just like how much you do it is the benefit you'll get. The more you put into it, the more you'll understand it, the more clearly you see it, the more it becomes a part of you, the more you'll start to learn and grow in the practice. Yeah, and that's really on you. You know, I can, I can do my part in the basement of the church telling you how to put it. Ultimately, you go home into your lives. You have to figure out what that means, what that looks like. Yeah, and there's ways to do it. There's apps for it. You could set an alarm every day for a certain time. You could look at your life. When, when does it make sense for you? Get a bit of a morning routine. Um, you know, everybody has 10 minutes. Everybody has 30 minutes. Probably everyone has an hour every day that you're not actually doing something. Yeah, and if you don't, then wake up a little bit earlier. Go to bed a little bit later. But even so, nobody... I. I don't even know what your lives look like, and I would bet my life that none of you are living a full every moment of your day filled with doing something lives. Yeah. Because I've been trying to do that, and it's exhausting. It's really hard. It doesn't really work. Yeah. That nobody goes from morning till night straight every single day. We all have times and blocks and spaces that we could adjust if we wanted to. So that's kind of my response to that. <laughs> that, that's a really good outline. It didn't say what we were trying to do in six sessions. 